Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we will learn about the gospel of the kingdom, which concerns both our personal salvation and Christ's future kingdom. Now, I never expected to write about the gospel, and yet here I am finding myself needing to clarify the biblical gospel in the light of a rising movement, even within the church, that is redefining what the Bible says about this subject. If you search on the internet, you will quickly discover some of the many other Gospels that are out there. There's the social Gospel, also called social constructivism. There's the Gospel of science, Christian humanism, and the list goes on and on and on. So let's begin this teaching with the basic definition of the Christian Gospel. The Gospel is the teaching about the revelation of Christ and it communicates a set of principles and beliefs that are absolute truths about God and humanity. These truths communicate God's message concerning both personal salvation and His future kingdom. And so the full or the complete gospel has two parts, and we see that one is personal and the other is corporate to the body of Christ. We're going to discuss both. Concerning salvation, Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Revelation chapter 1, we read, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. In John chapter 3, we read, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 17, We read, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter declared in Acts chapter 2, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in chapter 4 we read, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christian theologians have raised many questions about salvation. For example, what does it mean to be born again? And what about that person who has never heard of Jesus? What about children that do not yet fully comprehend their need for a Savior? And is it possible to accept Christ after we die? And is there a second chance, what is called purgatory? I do not know with certainty the answer to these questions. However, I would not bet my life on a delayed decision to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. We read in Romans chapter 13, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. One thing is clear from Scripture. Salvation is simple to understand even for a child. And I feel it is important for us as Christians not to overly complicate God's path of salvation. The church, in sharing the good news of Jesus, is the message of the gospel. And this good news is his love for us and his desire to forgive humanity for its sinful and fallen condition. 
This good news is also his promise of our resurrection and eternal life in him, making us a new creation. In other words, we get a clean slate and a new beginning. Everything about this current life and the difficulties found in this world will one day soon fade away, and we will enter his glorious kingdom for eternity. Now that is good news. One important detail about salvation is that it is a gift from God. We cannot do anything to earn it. Why is that? Because we never deserved it in the first place. As I read through the Bible, I am reminded of just how far humanity has fallen short of God's perfection. Even the nation of Israel disastrously rebelled against the Lord until he destroyed their kingdom and scattered them to the farthest ends of the earth. Some view these scriptures through the lens of an angry God, but I don't. I feel God's broken heart on nearly every page of the Bible. For example, the Lord said to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Have you ever spoken those words to a rebellious child? It breaks my heart to think of all the times I tried to protect my children from their self-destructive choices. But at some point, I had to let go, believing they would return one day to the right path. The gospel is like the Lord saying this, I have tried for thousands of years to steer humanity in the right direction always encouraging them to make good and wise decisions, but severely punishing them when they did not. Now I yield my anger towards my rebellious children, declaring in Isaiah 44, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins return to me, for I have redeemed you. I can also hear the Lord saying this, I will no longer curse the earth for your rebellion. I will deal with your sin and sinful nature. You defiled my creation, and yet I will forgive the debt you owe me. I will annul your covenant with death. I will demonstrate unconditional and unmerited favor and love towards you. I will heal you. I will restore you to your pre-fallen condition. I will make an eternal and unbreakable covenant of peace with you, and I will give my life for yours to officiate this new covenant of blood. Now that is love. Luke chapter 2, we read, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And the only thing that we must do to receive this covenant of peace is to say yes to God's plan of salvation, to believe that Jesus is our Savior, and to surrender to the truth that we have sinned against God and that Jesus has paid the cost for our redemption. It's that simple. Unfortunately, this is where some theological opinions begin to drift away from this simple truth. And the Apostle James may have inadvertently added some confusion by saying in James chapter 2, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Let's break this down for a moment. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The implication here is that faith is required for salvation. Well, not exactly. Paul said that grace is required for salvation and that God's grace works through our faith 
causing us to believe and leading us to repentance. But even our faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, and he has given each one a measure of faith. In other words, our faith does not save us. God's grace saves us. Faith is a gift from God so that we might believe that he has saved us by his grace. Therefore, we are only saved by grace and nothing else. And yet without faith, we could never see God's grace, and therefore we would never say yes to his offer to forgive and grant us eternal life. So how much of our salvation can we take credit for? Well, nothing, except that we chose to say yes. And that is what some theologians call free will. So now with this understanding, can we in any way add to our salvation? Absolutely not. Therefore, James was not declaring that salvation requires our faith plus good works. He was saying that if we have faith to believe that Christ is our Savior, then the outcome of that belief, the manifestation of our faith, is love towards God and others that is demonstrated by our good works. And for what purpose are we to demonstrate these good works? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, our good works are not to earn or enhance our salvation. Our good works are for others to see the love of God in us, so they might also believe in Christ for their salvation. Our good works are part of our testimony of God's transforming work in our lives. And James is reminding us that if we do not display God's love for others, then somewhere in our relationship with the Lord, we are missing his transformation of our souls and daily renewal of our minds. And worse, we may be resisting the Holy Spirit and following the old nature, which is the carnality of the flesh. Not demonstrating good works has nothing to do with our salvation, but it has everything to do with our ongoing sanctification. Sanctification begins when we accept Christ, and it continues for the rest of our lives until Christ perfects us at the resurrection. Sanctification is a result of our salvation and not the other way around. Some people naively believe that God will not save them until they are sanctified. That is what I call the works of the flesh or a religious spirit. So therefore the gospel is not just a one-time message for salvation. When life overwhelms us, the gospel becomes our daily message, reminding us that God has already saved us by His grace, comforted in the knowledge of our future resurrection in Christ and eternal life in His kingdom. So if we return for a moment to all these other gospels, we begin to see their futility. Science cannot save us, nor any social engineering of our culture. And Christian humanism? Don't even get me started on that topic. This world is quickly drifting away from orthodox Christianity towards secular humanism, where seemingly good people can create a comfortable world apart from God. It will never happen. And this brings me to my last topic, the kingdom of God. Most of Jesus' sermons were about his kingdom, which he also called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are effectively the same. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what did he mean by at hand? Was he implying that the kingdom was now established on the earth? Not exactly. 
The disciples asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus lovingly answered, No. For now the kingdom of God, and more importantly, the king, is living in our hearts. So yes, the kingdom is at hand, but it is not here yet on the earth. In the book of Revelation, chapter 11, we read that when the angel blows the seventh trumpet, loud voices in heaven will declare, The kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The promise of this future kingdom is part of the gospel, part of the good news. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith he, Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And Jesus said in John chapter 18, My kingdom is not of this world. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels. And the first three are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because it is believed they were written from the same source material. Of these three, it is believed that Mark was written first and the other two sourced directly from the book of Mark. The question is this. Can we fully understand the gospel by only reading four out of 66 books in the Bible? Well, regarding salvation, yes. I did not get saved reading the book of Genesis. God saved me when I read about Jesus in the book of Matthew. But regarding the gospel of the kingdom, we need the whole Bible, New and Old Testaments. Absent the books of Moses, how would we learn about God's covenant with Abraham? Absent the Hebrew writings, how would we learn about God's covenant with King David? And absent the prophecies, how would we believe God's redemptive promises for Israel? Even the book of Revelation adds clarity about the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem. So therefore, Paul said in Acts chapter 20, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Yeshua spoke plainly to his disciples, saying, It had been given to us to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And to Peter he said in Matthew chapter 16, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys in the Jewish tradition represent knowledge and understanding. Thus it is written in Matthew chapter 13, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, when the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. In other words, the enemy steals the faith planted in the heart and thereby prevents that person from understanding the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, fewer Christians today are willing to share their faith with others with a 25% drop just in the last 25 years. Silencing us is another strategy of our enemy. I hear some Christians say, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. This quote they attribute to St. Francis of Assisi, who is the founder of the Franciscan order, implying it is more important to demonstrate the gospel than to preach it. There's just one problem. St. Francis never said it, and in fact, he was an avid preacher of the gospel. Paul said this about preaching the gospel in Romans chapter 10, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We must preach the gospel, 
at a minimum, the gospel of salvation. This is the first step in fulfilling the Great Commission. And the second step is the discipleship of all the nations, which requires the teaching of the full gospel, including the gospel of the kingdom. In 1974, Billy Graham found himself in the middle of a heated dispute with the evangelical Christian community. Some argued that preaching the gospel requires more than just words. Did the demonstration of the gospel also require action, even for moral and just social causes? After all, prominent names such as William Wilberforce were often cited as examples of Christians that took responsibility for establishing God's biblical law on society. Hence, the definition for the social gospel was formed. Billy Graham eventually agreed to expand the focus of his movement from just saving souls to include some level of practicing social justice. This effort was an appeasement to help reunite the evangelical community around the primary responsibility of the church to communicate the gospel. Graham and others convened in Lausanne, Switzerland, and drafted a manifesto that called for a new kind of Christian social responsibility. The text reads in part, Because men and women are made in the image of God, every person, regardless of race, religion, color, culture, class, sex, or age, has an intrinsic dignity because of which he or she should be respected and served, not exploited. Here, too, we express penitence both for our neglect and for having sometimes regarded evangelism and social concern as mutually exclusive. As Christians, we are called to hate evil and love good, establishing justice in the courts of our cities. So therefore, I fully agree with our responsibility to pursue righteousness and seek justice for those who are unable. We read in Psalm 89, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. But little of this will communicate the gospel of salvation unless someone preaches our need for a savior. And so the gospel is both the good news of our immediate salvation in Christ and the good news of our future resurrection and eternal life in the kingdom of God. And for this time in between, the good works we demonstrate to others are the testimony of the gospel of salvation to those who are perishing. If we do one without the other, our testimony of Christ to others will ring with the shallowness of a clanging cymbal. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So therefore let us preach the full gospel of the kingdom to all men with confidence and most importantly with love. Preaching the gospel unto the salvation for those who are perishing and the gospel of the kingdom to those who are already disciples of Christ. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, 
Make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.